So we're coming back uh, to Luke this morning, and as I've observed for the last few weeks, Luke takes a particular interest in the stories that Jesus told. In fact, he uniquely gives us a set of stories that nobody else um, even remembers. And we're always wondering why the writers in the Bible write what they do. I mean, we have big theories about how that all happened, that God's the grand author behind it. There is a, a meta-narrative is the technical term. Um, but nobody really knew that. They just knew that they were writing things that were important to them or that were true to them or that had been experienced by them. And so we want, want to sort of get in Luke's mind and wonder why he told us the stories that he did. Because God had a bigger story behind all of these small stories. And when we looked at John, I suggested that the reason John chose all of the I am statements is that they are perfect examples of how Jesus normalized religion. How he took it back from the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes who made it very legalistic with all kinds of rules and details and just said, it's, it's like this. It's just like ordinary life in these ways, just like a shepherd looks after his sheep. You know, just like the light in the temple courts is glorious light. Um, you know, that's what it is like to be in a relationship with me. So we saw that in John, and now we wonder what Luke has for us in the stories that he told. So we've seen t two so far, and the two stories that we, saw, that we have seen so far, um, I think, are helping us to understand uh, some of what Jesus wants us to, or what uh, Luke is wanting to help us to remember what Jesus did. So um, we saw last week that um, there, there are some things that would change everything. So if you weren't here last week, just ask somebody to explain celebration right to you. Just ask them to explain celebrate, and, and you'll get the whole sermon. It was, the whole sermon was wrapped up in that one little story. There are two things that change everything for the Christian life. My mortality, which is the story of the rich farmer. Nothing at all wrong with his business plan. It was a good business plan. He needed more storage for his crops. But what he hadn't thought about was his own mortality, and that changed everything. Because Jesus said, tonight, you're going to die. So then what does that make of all of this? Good business plan, if you were living forever. And then we saw last week that there's another thing that changes everything, which is the reality of the coming of Jesus. That uh, the story that Jesus told was about a, a person who had been away at his own wedding feast, presumably, and when he came back to his locked compound, in the middle of the night, he found that his watchman was fully awake, fully dressed, and ready. And so he commended him and actually came into the banquet room of his own great big house and said to the servant, why don't you sit down, I'll get you a snack. You know, here you were ready and watching for me. And so the second thing that would change everything, I think, in living the Christian life is the possibility that Jesus might return today. So again, I asked you last Sunday morning how many woke up, I didn't ask you to actually show me, but how many woke up thinking perhaps today Jesus is going to return? And I wonder this morning, did I even remember that I said we should be asking that of ourselves morning by morning? Perhaps this could be the day that Jesus returns. Have you started saying DV at the end of everything that uh, you say or write, which means Deo Valente, which is if the Lord's will. Um, because in the New Testament, we're told that we shouldn't say we'll do this or that. We should say if the Lord wills, we should do this or that. Um, and uh, the old Christian slogan, should the Lord tarry, we will do this or that. So is it a possibility that Jesus is returning today? It's an absolute possibility. So what's your plan B 
for all of the things that are on your agenda today, if Jesus were actually to be on his way back, well, it really wouldn't matter, would it? Because you'd be gone. You'd be on the way um, to be with loved ones and with the Lord forever and ever, says, says the Holy Scriptures to us. So these two things change everything. The two realities of our mortality and the coming of Jesus Christ would change fundamentally, I think, the way I live and presumably the way that you live your Christian life. We're going to carry on a bit with this whole notion of being watchful because here's how um, the Apostle Paul takes Jesus' teaching and begins to put it into practice for those that he's concerned about. He says this is what it's all about. Cheerfully pleasing God is the main thing, and that's what we aim to do, regardless of our conditions. We will appear before Christ and receive what's coming to us as a result of our actions, either good or useless. And I've put IC in there because that's my, I've changed the word there because it says good or bad in most versions, but it's not the word bad that means evil. Um, it's a word that means useless. It means throwaway. So we know that what's called the judgment seat of Christ, which Paul's talking about here, um, is not a time when we have to worry about whether we're going to get into heaven or not, but it's a time when Jesus assesses what has gone on in our lives, and he helps us remember and discover what was good and what was sort of good for nothing. Um, somebody that I was reading this week said that he thought that it's going to be like this, that when we get to heaven by death or by the coming of Christ, that we immediately have a little one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. We have this um, kind of review of our lives. And it's not something to be terrified about. It's a time, says this writer, when Jesus looks back over our lives with us and says, I know you have some questions, and I have some questions, so you go first. And we say, well, what did that mean when that happened? Or why did that happen and not that? And then Jesus might say, if you're done, here are my questions. Why did you spend so much time doing that thing? Because it really didn't count. And did you realize that when you were doing that other thing, it, I was really impressed about that. That was really good. So I, I like that notion that we will, we will get our one-on-one. -on -one. We'll get our personal review, our personal evaluation, not to decide whether we get through the door or not, but to help us settle the affairs of our lives and say, oh, okay, and, and we'll, we will be full of regret. I, I don't know that there's any of us who would not be, because once we meet him, we will say, oh, man, there's so much more I could have done, I should have done, and I didn't. If I had only had this in mind, if I'd only had my, my eyes fixed on this meeting, I would have done differently. And Jesus probably will say, yeah, but come on, let's go on. So we'll get what's coming to us, not in the sense that we would usually use that term, but uh, the reward. Um, and the beauty of the reward is this. When we get to the book of Revelation, we see all of us characterized as elders and all of those who are worshiping in heaven. And John says, says in his vision that he saw us throwing our crowns at Jesus' feet. So to rid ourselves of the notion that we should live lives so we can get a pile of reward, the reason for the reward is to have something in our hands when we come into the presence of Jesus in worship. And so we simply give to him the reward he's given to us and say, it was from you, of you, and by you, and I'm delighted to be able to put this back at your feet where it belongs. So that's what will happen when we get there. So Paul goes on, and he says, it's no light thing. He said, that keeps us vigilant. And there, there's the operative word for the watchfulness of the story of uh, the, the master who comes back. 
the story of the wise and foolish virgins, the story of the wiser, foolish business person who invested or didn't. All of, all of those parables are about this whole notion that we should live lives of vigilance, uh, watching for the coming of Jesus, watching for his return, just like the bride's attendants did, just like the watchmen did. That's what we ought to be called to. So vigilant is the operative word from Paul's teaching concerning Jesus' parables about watchfulness. He says, it's no light thing to know that we'll all one day stand in that place of judgment. That's why we work urgently with everyone we meet to get them ready to face God. God alone knows how well we do this. But I hope you realize how much and deeply we care. If I acted crazy, I did it for God. If I acted overly serious, I did it for you. Christ's love has moved me to such extremes. His love has the first and last word in everything we do. If I acted crazy, I did it for God. If I acted seriously, I did it for you. You might wonder what all that has to do. What is it that is urgent? What is it that Paul says we are completely driven about? What has to happen if he is to fulfill this, this great motivation of his heart that, that we're going to try to get into a bit today? He says, that's why we work urgently with everyone we meet to get them ready to meet God. What does it mean to work urgently with people to get them ready to meet God? That's where I'd like to camp today because I'd, I'd like to try to deconstruct or to debunk or to challenge the ways that we might normally think of that. So here's what I think it's not. The thing that is not urgent as far as people are concerned so that they are ready to meet God What's not urgent is that they get it right. What's not urgent is that we make them right. But we might think those are the two things that would compose an urgent readiness on the part of people to meet God. That they would get it right. They would know the right thing. And that they would live the right way. That we would make them right. That they would get it right. And we would make them right then they might be ready to meet God. Those aren't two totally throwaway ideas, but they're not the heart of what it is that's urgent for us. And, and that's what I wanted to really assert today. The thing that is urgent is not that people get it right or that we make them right. There's something else far, far more important than that. Now, th there are strange movements today, as, as you well know, there are strange movements in politics. I think what used to be sort of a, a centrist Canada, for example, has gone either left or right. So we're not so much a liberal country just left of center anymore. We've gone like left or right. And in my world, in evangelical theology, we have gone from the center to a lot of left and to a lot of right. So many of my friends have walked away to the left and a lot of my friends have also moved over to the right. And the ones that have moved over to the right are very interesting to me because they are a neo-Orthodox. They're a new, ultra-conservative group of people. And the thing that they're obsessed with, so you can see that I'm, I'm, I haven't walked over there, at least not just yet, they're obsessed with getting it right. They're obsessed with better theology, better doctrine, 
And I kind of scratch my head in the middle of a society that doesn't even know what it is we do when we get together in what we call church. They could care less about doctrine. They don't know whether God is sovereign or not because they don't know if there's a God and if he or she cares about them. I mean, they're, they're, it's not in their minds to make sure they get it right. But there's a whole movement now that is saying, you better get it right. And so rather than being a generous Orthodox community, we've either gone to the left, which is to say we're leaving it all behind, and we're leaving it all behind for a variety of reasons, or we've gone to the right, which is to say let's just tune it up even more than we had before because that's what the world needs. And I just don't think it is because we're not called to get it right or to make them right because part and parcel of that right is a prescribed style of living that many in our society have simply put to bed. Whether they should have or not is not my concern right here, but they've put to bed notions of morality and ethics that they think are part and parcel of having a relationship with God because they think that's what we're telling them. And the more we go to the right, the more that is what we're telling them. So what's urgent, I think, is not that they get it right or that we make them right. What's urgent is that they discover that they are desperately loved by God. It is simply that. Jesus didn't come to get it right or make it right. He came to say that God loves the world. And the comparison of the gospel narratives with all of the Old Testament you know, prescriptions of morality and ethics and even all the ways that it's resorted in the, in the letters of the New Testament, all of those other things pale in contrast to the stark message of Jesus, which is a message of personified love. What people need, what's urgent, is not that they get it right. There are things to get right. Or that we make them right. Jesus makes them right well enough by himself. But what's urgent is that they know that they are loved. Every one of us needs to know how desperately we're loved. So let me just flesh this out a little bit more this morning as we look at um, Paul's explanation here. He starts by saying, cheerfully pleasing God is the main thing. Now this is Eugene Peterson's message translation, which is a good translation, apart from the bad word, which he shouldn't have used, bad, should have used useless. But he didn't ask me. I was in his class, but he still didn't ask me, right? Cheerfully pleasing God is the main thing. I grew up with a pretty stern Christianity, a, a really stern Christianity. I grew up in, in Belfast in, in a very tight gospel hall context, and some of you know what that means culturally. We knew what not to do. It was pretty much everything that was fun, right? We didn't really know much about what we are to do, which except for go to church Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, and Sunday evening, and Wednesday night, because then you wouldn't have any time to get in trouble, right? My pastor was an incredibly stern pastor, and the irony of my life and my moth attracted to the light sort of demeanor is that when I came to North America, I ended up working for that same pastor in Philadelphia when I went to school there. My pastor, who was a finger-wagging, um, scolding pastor for years in Belfast, became my pastor in Philadelphia, 
as I served him in his church, again under the thumb of this stern, stern pastor. Those were the days of coffee houses. We had a coffee house, and there were people who were coming to the coffee house and, and wanting to follow Jesus. And I remember coming to church on a Sunday morning with one of the fellows that had been at the coffee house. He had long hair. Even so, I liked him. <laughs> when we walked into church, the pastor met him in the lobby. Here's exactly what he said. Young man, when you get a haircut, you come on back. Do you know when he came back? Never did. Never did. Stern, stern. Christians had long faces. In Ireland, we have an expression, a face like a lurgan spade. A lurgan spade you use for digging potatoes. And it's got a really long and you would look at someone and say, what's wrong with you? You have a face like a Lurgan spade. Every Christian I knew had a face like a Lurgan spade. You can have a Lurgan spade face and help people get it right and make them right. But you can't do it and love people. It's just not part of the bundle. So Paul begins by saying, here's, here's how we go at this. Cheerfully pleasing God. Like the most delightful people you meet ought to be Christians. If, if we believe what we say we believe, if we're expecting what we say we're expecting, what's wrong with our faces? Why do we get this sternness about us? And why do we move into this place of kind of defensiveness about, well, you better be careful not to compromise any of this stuff, let any of this slip away. Um, why don't we say, well, okay, but first of all, joy cheerfulness, gladness. I love that Mary Augustus, are you happy? Because happiness is a bit to do with circumstances and sometimes we're not relaxed, but we are, we are joyful people and Paul says, I spend my life cheerfully wanting to please God. Do you know how he used to spend his life? Angrily murdering Christians. He was breathing threats as he made his way to, to Damascus, when Jesus met him on the road and said, hey, you, you're going to start following me. And he who was breathing threats, murderous threats against the church, became a lover of people. And Paul says, so now he, what's urgent to me is we get people ready to meet God. How do I do that? I cheerfully serve Jesus. I, I have something in my step that is, that is joy-filled, that is positive, as I please God in what I'm doing with my life. He says, that's what we aim to do, regardless of our conditions. And he had some bad ones, right? He was shipwrecked, he was stoned, he was beaten. He, all kinds of things happened to him. He, it, none of it could defeat his joy or his cheer. And he says, um, what's coming to us because of our actions, whether it's good or useless, that keeps us vigilant, you can be sure. It's no light thing to know that we'll all one day stand in that place of judgment. That's why we work urgently with everyone to get them ready to meet God. God alone knows how well we do this, but listen to what he says now. He says, I hope you realize how much and deeply we care. I hope you realize how much and deeply we care. Again, when those who don't follow Jesus yet meet someone who does follow Jesus, they ought somehow or other to be absolutely convinced about how much we care about them. And the way Jesus sorts society is quite interesting. Because there were people that Jesus met 
and nobody in the religious community would have any inclination that they had any care for them at all. And yet, when they met Jesus, something in his face, something in his demeanor, something showed them that he deeply cared. You know, was it a woman who snuck up behind so desperate just to touch his coat in case that could heal her, knowing that if he turned and saw her, she wasn't going to be sent away by him? Right? Was it a woman at a well who was fascinated by this Jewish man who talked to her, an adulterous Samaritan woman, why did she even glance in his direction? She, she should have been downcast. She should not have come near him. But there was something about him that at the end of the day, she went running home. She said, hey, I've seen somebody. I've met somebody who has told me everything I've ever done. And even when they were talking, Jesus, again, I think with that look on his face, she's, he said, go and tell your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, I know. <laughs> I know. Because how many have you had so far? Right? He didn't tell her, get it right. Or he didn't make her right. He just loved her. And she knew that she was loved by him. And the cheer in his face, I think the cheer in his dominion, is the model for us as followers of Jesus. I hope you realize how much and deeply we care. If I acted crazy, and I don't know what he's talking about. But he said, if, if I acted crazy, the reason I was acting crazy somehow or other was for God. That I, I was in a reckless state of, of abandon for God. But if I came on pretty heavily, it was basically to try to get you guys to get it. But you need to know how deeply, how deeply we cared for you. He goes on, he says, Christ's love has moved me to such extremes. His love has the first and last word in everything we do. So there it is. What's urgent? That people get ready to meet God. What are our tools? They're not getting it right or making them right. The, the tool we have is the love of Christ. The love of Christ, the love of God. And it consumes us to the point that we should be like Paul, we are full of cheer, and we say we love you deeply, deeply, so deeply, and it's all because of the love of Christ. That's what has moved me to such extremes. It has the first and the last word in everything we do. But teacher, what is the most important kind of law? Because we're hearing a lot of stuff these days. Thousands of rules, this kind, that kind, the third kind. Which kind of rule is most important? And Jesus says, well, I don't, you tell me. What, what do your scriptures tell you? Well, and, and they come up with love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbors. Jesus says that's exactly right. The first one and then the second one is equally important. Love God and love people. Not get it right, not make them right, love God, and love people. So what if we just said, that's it, that's all we're going to do, is love people. Now, that's an easy thing to agree with, a horribly difficult thing to do. Because as we watch Jesus, we can agree with him most of the way until he starts loving the kinds of people we're not sure we're ready to love. And, and there's the proof of the pudding. 
here's a guy who is a rascal who has swindled people left, right, and center, who has a reputation in town for someone that you ought not to go do business with. And this guy has the guts to climb a tree to watch Jesus come by. He's probably going, so who's this guy? And Jesus stops. He says, hey, Zacchaeus, you, the little guy that they say is a scoundrel, I'm coming for dinner to your place. Now, when we're told that the Pharisees were, were staggered by this, it's an understatement. I mean, they are absolutely abhorred by this. this. There's nothing good about this guy. And Jesus says, yeah, well, that's where I'm going for dinner. The Pharisee we saw in, in John's accounts, when this woman, this adulterous woman, came and was making a fool of herself, who was just, you know, there weeping and pouring ointment over Jesus' feet, they were disgusted. They said, if he was a prophet, He'd know what this is, this woman. And Jesus said, Simon, Mr. Pharisee, I have something to tell you. You missed out on a lot of the things you should have done when you welcomed me into your house. This woman has picked up where you should have left off. She has loved me. She has anointed me. And I tell you that the whole world will speak about her because she loved me greatly. See, Jesus, he went beyond the boundary. So I think the thing for us is to start there and say, who is the person or the kind of person I have most difficulty loving? That's probably a starting point. And then who is the person or the kind of person I could not actually ever see myself loving? Then go there. Because that's the person that Jesus would love. And he wouldn't be concerned with that person getting it right or making that person right. He would be concerned simply with loving that person with, with fragrant love. Paul says, you see, that, that's where it starts and finishes, with love. L- let me give you something that I hope can help us sort of figure out what Jesus is about, what he's trying to do. So we have some continua. And what I want to ask is, why is it that Jesus is so fixated on love? Um, and why is he so interested in the least and the last? Why is he so hard on success in human terms? Why does he dismiss human abilities and wisdom and all that kind of stuff? What's, why is nothing right about us for him in our you know, well-ordered little lives and worlds? And he rushes into that with desperate love for us but he says there's a lot of junk you have to get rid of if you're going to experience my love you got to stop being so impressed with yourself you got to stop thinking you're the one that has it right and does it right you just got to stop that and you got to stop thinking that this is the way it always has to be or should be and you've got to stop thinking that that person gets something by his or her merit and that person doesn't you got to stop that stuff you got to stop hating people. you got to stop cheating people. You have to love people. You have to ease up on all that stuff. Why, is he, why does he just not let things be the way they are? Because he wants to invade his creation with love. And here's, here's how I sort this out. So sin, 
is a big deal. And if there is anything we have to get right, it's sin. Not get right at doing it, but understanding that what's wrong, what's broken is sin. Um, and sin has wreaked havoc in every possible way in our lives and in our world. There's nothing untouched by it. So when we're surprised about that, we ought not to be because sin broke the world. We, we broke it by sinning, but it was sin that broke the world. So there is the standard, the possibility of knowing good and doing good. So I'll, co- I'll come back to the get it right and, and make them right. God knows good and does good all the time. That's who he is. But at the other end of the continuum, there are us, those who don't know good and don't do good. And both in the area of ethics and morality and in the area of just living life with the brokenness that it brings, um, sickness, disasters, disappointments, all of that kind of stuff. We are so far from the no good do good, you know, optimism of, of creation, that we're somewhere down towards don't know and don't do. So then we come and look at ourselves and, see, and say, so how do we deal with, with those poles that there is the doing good, knowing good, and there's the not doing good, not knowing good stuff? How do I step into that? And the problem is I step into that with a problem. The problem is pride. And mostly what Jesus is after is pride. He's going to go for the jugular on pride. Why does he not like the religious people? Because they're proud. Why does he not like the successful people who despise others? Because they're proud. So he says, we're not going to have any of that. Um, That's the way the Gentiles do it, because they're driven by pride. Not so among you. So on that continuum, there are those who, the way they step into the no good, do good, and don't know good, and don't do good world in which we live, is that they become self-righteous and they become moralizing. And they are the ones that Jesus is after. Because the problem is that they're wrong about their self-righteousness, and they're wrong and they're moralizing. So there's a Pharisee who goes to the temple. He says, I thank God that I'm not like other men. And you think, who in the world would ever dare to pray that? Well, come on. Just read, read the magazines. Re- read the stories. Read the success stories of our society. I thank God that I'm great. Oh, and by the way, it is a concession. You know, the shout out to Jesus thing, right? But I'm great. And then there's a tax collector. And he can't even lift his head up, but he he beats his chest and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, who do you think went home forgiven? Certainly was not the Pharisee. So for some, the way we spin our religion is to pretend. We don't even know sometimes that we're pretending that we are righteous. And then we moralize our righteousness on other people. And the problem is that we've lived in, in a Christendom kind of society for so long that we've gotten away with that. 
But now there's a great big pushback that says, no, 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 no. The bundle of righteousness that you sold us, it might have been good on some fronts, but it was pure evil on other fronts. And we're not buying it anymore. The opposite of that are those who are self-condemned and excluded. And it's, it's a pride-dignity kind of partnership, right? So th- there are so many people in our society and so many of us who know that we don't get the no good, do good thing. And maybe we've been self-righteous and moralizing until we've crashed hard enough that we've had a good look at ourselves. And so we all tumble down, and not only does pride that belonged up with our self-righteousness and moralizing kind of crumbling away, but our dignity does too. And we've nothing left when we look in the mirror and we say there's a no good, do good standard that I cannot reach. I've tried to be the self-righteous, proud, moralizing person until I failed or my family failed, or my business failed, or whatever it was. And now I've come tumbling down. I'm into the miserable mass of people who have no dignity and who are now excluded from the club, from the membership. They've had to give back their cards. And Jesus, when he steps into it, he just brings love and says, if, if you will follow me, love will bring you into the kind of hopeful, redemptive life, it will be the urgency about getting you prepared to get to heaven because you can throw away all of the other stuff. You can throw away your your failures and you can throw away your self-righteousness. In fact, it's going to be easier for you to get to my love from self-condemnation and exclusion than it is to get there from self-righteousness and moralizing. We have to stop being self-righteous people and moralizing for our world. We have to stop it. We have to say we're broken, that we fail. We do fail. We will fail. And the only thing that we're cheerful about is the love of Jesus because he stepped into our brokenness with pure love. And he says, if if you want to get this, here's what you have to get. Love God with everything you have. Because the more you know who he is and what he's like, you can't not love him. If, if that's a little too abstract for you, love Jesus. Because, you know, with all of the conversations we have, not very many people don't like Jesus a lot. They struggle with what he claimed and all that kind of stuff. But it must have been a party to be anywhere near Jesus, don't you think? I mean, it must have been fun, especially if you were getting his program and you saw one more lawyer walking into the room with a question for Jesus. You go, watch this, man. He's going to kill this guy, too. Because, oh, excuse me, um, teacher, we know you are well-versed, and what about this? And Jesus is like, yeah, good question, you idiot. No, he never did, right? That would be, be me. Whose wife will she be at the resurrection? <laughs> That's a good one. But it was just fun to be with him. He went to parties, right? He would be watching the World Cup. He'd be going, England, England. (laughs) So 
why don't we get that? Why are we still protecting ourselves in our self-righteousness and moralizing? And why don't we just say, it's not my job to fix the world. It's my job to love people and tell them that the reason I love them is that Jesus loves me and it's the best thing. And he will tell them what they need to, to know and he will fix them and make them whatever they're supposed to be. It's not my job, right? It's my job to love recklessly. It's to lo- my job to love with no abandon. It's my job to love people, and even if they come and say, you, you're not going to think much of me after this, I'm going to say, oh, yes, I am. I have people come and talk to me, and, and several times someone has come and said, I'm about to tell you something that I'm sure is the worst thing you've ever heard, and I always say, I guarantee it's not. I've heard the worst things, and I don't think you've got it. Every now and then, there's one that I go, mm, yeah, that might be it. <laughs> Love just says, it's not my job to, to sort you out. It's my job to tell you that Jesus loves you desperately. That's all he came to say. He didn't come with rules. He didn't come with a lifestyle. He just came, and he loved people to the nth degree. Paul says that's how you live a watchful life. That's how you do what you're supposed to do. That's how to be vigilant. That's how to get people ready for heaven. Because at the end of the day, if somebody at the end of their life did not get from you that they are welcome in God's family because you judged what they thought they believed and how they lived. It is not my business to judge somebody's lifestyle and say, because of that, you don't get to heaven. I'm not the rule keeper. I'm not the doorkeeper. I'm not the in and out person. I'm simply told to love people desperately as Jesus did and let him tell them what's right and let him tell them how to live. The Holy Spirit is way better than I am at changing people's lives. Way better. And it's not even my job to try. Let me pray. Father, help us to delight in love, delight in your love. Like John, when he said, look at this, what kind of love is this that we would be called the children of God? Help us, Father, to be abandoned to your love, to live in your love, and to live out of your love, to leave our self-righteousness at the door and our moralizing where it belongs, which is packed away somewhere for sorting later on. Help us to love people. Help us to love all people. Help us this week to love the person that's most difficult for us to love as we sort ourselves out right today. In Jesus' name.